So Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25, then can be found on page 2. The, the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man, ca- so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Um, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, and it's on page 1135 from the Bibles in the foyer. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was created for woman was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason And because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Let's be honest, here is a very strange part of the Bible. It's strange and we have a whole lot of questions. Partly because it's just a little hard to follow at times. 
but mostly because we really just don't understand this practice of covering heads. What is this covering that's supposed to go on a woman's head? Why is it important? And most importantly, I think, the main thing on our mind is, why isn't anyone doing it tonight? And should we still be doing this today? A number of the older people this morning told me how they used to, the women always used to wear hats in church. And the men would always take their hats off. But seems to have dropped out. Is that important? There are a whole series of questions in this passage, but underneath all of them, more important than all of them, is one simple truth which just so happens to be a very controversial truth. It's there in verse 3. The head of the woman is man. So many questions and one controversial truth. We've prayed already. I reckon we better pray again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'd help me to be clear. Help us to understand this passage clearly, to see its one simple truth clearly, and to accept it in our heads. And Father, help us to work out what we should do about what it says about what should go on our heads. And help us to work out how we must show in our lives this one simple truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 2, Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. In the midst of some pretty serious criticisms that he's going to say to this church in Corinth, he wants to affirm that they've been remembering him. They've been holding on to the teachings. But there's something that he wants them to come to know. Something that he wants them to realize. Verse 3. Actually, there are three things, aren't they? Verse 3. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Three things, but one stands out. The head of man is Christ. God raised him from the dead, exalted him to his right hand, and now every knee and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. The head of every man is Christ. That's why we want to reach the lost, isn't it? Also, the head of Christ is God. They are both God. They're both divine. They were equally God. But God the Father sent his Son. And his Son said on Easter Thursday, Not my will, but yours be done. The head of Christ is God. But the one that stands out is in the middle, isn't it? And that's the one that's the centre of this passage. The head of the woman is man. 
We've now come to our senses and we can say that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Men and women are different. But it's not okay in our society to say that one of them should be the head or the leader of the other. And so some people have said that this word here, head, doesn't actually mean leader or responsible one, but source, like the head of the river, where the river comes from, uh, the source. So uh, the source of the woman is man. Well, I don't think the word actually means that, but even if it did, how would it fit here? How can the source of Christ be God. I thought they were both God. They were both eternal. How can Christ have a source? And in Ephesians 5, where Paul says that wives are to submit to their husbands because husbands are the head of the wife, clearly that means authority, doesn't it? It means responsibility. Now, the word here means leader. It means responsible one, the one to whom the other one submits. So the leader, the leader of every man is Christ. The leader of Christ is God. And the leader of the woman is man. Why is that the case? Is it that God has made men cleverer? That God has made men better leaders? No. No, it's because God has designed it has intended it this way. He intended it this way from the beginning. That's what he says as he explains the reason in verse 7. Do you see? A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. We saw it in our Bible reading, our first one tonight, didn't we? God created man and woman, male and female, both in the image of God. Equally valuable, equally precious. And he made the man first from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. He put him in the garden and told him to rule the garden. He is responsible. He's from God and he's made for God. That's what it means, that he's the glory of God. The woman, though, says Paul, is the glory of man. Does that mean she's just there to show the man's glory? She has no glory of her own? No. Verse 8, he explains what he means, doesn't he? The woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It was not good for the man to be alone. How could the man on his own fulfill God's purpose of ruling the garden and filling the world? He can't do it. He's weak on his own. He needs a helper, a helper who's suitable for him. So God made the woman. Out of the man, that's why she's called woman, out of man it means, and made for the man a helper suitable for him. 
So man is the glory of God, made from God and for God, and woman is the glory of man, made from man and for man. Therefore, says Paul, the head of the woman is man. Now before you reject this out of hand, before you think this is male chauvinism, before the men get a sudden rush of blood to the head and now I can tell women to do whatever I want, remember verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. You, man, are a man under authority. And if you have authority, you are to use authority like Christ to serve, not for your own advantage. Remember verse 3, the head of Christ is God. They are equally God. And so man and woman are equally made in the image of God. And even though the man was created first in the first couple, ever since we've been dependent on each other, haven't we? That's his point in verse 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Since the first couple, every man who's ever been born has been born out of a woman. There is not a man in existence who doesn't owe his existence to a woman. And there is not a man or a woman who doesn't owe their existence to God. We are all interdependent, even though the head of the woman is man. There are two really important things for us to get here. Two really important things for us to get right in our heads. First thing, your sex really matters. It seems the Christians in Corinth, the men and the women, had begun blurring the lines. They thought they were so free in Christ that things like whether you're a man or a woman just didn't matter anymore. Does that sound familiar? That's what our society says, isn't it? Gender is just a social construct Your sex doesn't matter to who you really are. After all, you can change your sex. It's really just about how you identify yourself, how you feel. But your sex matters. You can tell with little children. You talk to any mother or father with a young child who's managed, who has been given rather a boy and a girl. Were they different from the start? I was at a soccer training the other day. There was a mother there who had two girls and now God had blessed her with a boy. She spent the whole soccer training chasing him around. All he can do is crawl, but he never stops. She said, now I realize they're different, aren't they? Your sex actually matters. Paul says, I want you to realize that a woman is a woman and a man is is a man. And so as you go through life and ask the question, who am I? What's my identity? More important than what race you are from, more important than your nationality, 
More important than whether you are like your parents or if you've decided that you are nothing like your parents. More important than which friendship group you are in, your education, the job that you have, whether you're married or single or divorced. More important than any of those things is whether you're a man or a woman. That is fundamental to who you are. If you're a woman, then you say, I am a woman. That's who I am. If you're a man, say to yourself, I am a man. That's who I am. You need to realize that. Own that. And be thankful to God for that. We need to know that for ourselves and be comfortable with it. Parents, we need to teach that to our children and to our grandchildren. For that is who God made us. It really matters. And it helps us to know who we are. The second thing to know that Paul wants us to know is not just that our sex really matters, but to realise that the head of woman is man. That the head of every man is Christ, that the head of Christ is God, and that the way that God made the world is that the head of woman is man. They are equal and dependent on each other, but God has made man to be responsible to lead, and he has made woman to be a helper towards that leadership. It's a general principle in life, and it's specifically applied in the Bible to two things, to family life and to church life. In family life, the husband is the head of the wife and the wife is to willingly submit to his leadership. In church life, men are responsible to lead and to teach. Women are to do all sorts of ministry. They are to learn, but they are not to teach and lead men, says the Bible. Women, do you realise this, Paul asks? Do you accept this? Are you thankful for this? Wives and would-be wives. Can you see that this says this in the Bible? That it's a good design from God. And so do you want husbands and future husbands to lead and take responsibility? And do you want to follow their leadership? Husbands and would-be husbands. I am so tired of hearing about husbands who let their wives down. So please, seek to lead like Jesus. Lay down your life for your wife. Forsake all others and serve. Husbands should do housework. Servants serve. That's sort of part of the job. And they should be leading in making decisions and discipling their wives and discipling their kids. In church life, men, you're you're responsible to lead and teach. Have you got that in your head? Are you willing to step up? This coming week, the children at our local schools will have their Easter hat parades. And so the children want to know and the parents want to have it settled what's going to go on their heads. When you come to this passage, that might be the foremost thing in your mind. What's this head covering thing? 
But the reason we had the Easter hat-making thing yesterday was not so that the kids would have something to put on their heads, was it? It was so that they had the right thing in their heads. What is Easter all about? Same thing in this passage. The main thing is to get right what's going on in your head. Here is the one simple truth in this passage. The head of the woman is man. So your sex matters to who you are. And you need to realise this truth and accept it. Well, what about this peculiar teaching here in 1 Corinthians 11 about what should go on your head? Let's have a look at it. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Those of you who were here last week will still remember the story that Lillian told, the lady from Uganda, about the impact, her terrible upbringing and the impact that her sponsor from Australia had upon her life. She went on for a long time, didn't she? But none of us were looking at our watches because it was riveting. I reckon that was the longest time that a woman has spoken in our church probably ever. But wasn't it fantastic? It was fantastic and right because of verse 5. Because the Bible does say that the head of woman is man. And so men are responsible to teach. And 1 Timothy 2, women are not to teach over men. But verse 5 says, Every woman who prays or prophesies. And that's a right thing to do. In 12 to 14 of 1 Corinthians, he'll talk about this issue a lot. And prophecy, what is it? It's to speak in the gathering of God's people in church, to speak out loud, to encourage other people. That's what she was doing. And that's what verse 5 is talking about. Now it says in verse 5 that men are to do that uncovered and women are to have their heads covered. What is this covering that they're to have? Well, some people have said that really it's just about your hair and how your hair is to be arranged upon your head and the women are to arrange it somehow so that their head is covered especially. Is it just hair that he's talking about? I don't think so because verse 4 says that a man is to pray and prophesy with his head uncovered. Therefore, he'd need to have no hair. Now, there are a few people in the morning service who would have qualified for this. But looking around tonight, no one. There'd be no men who'd be allowed. You'd have to be bald. I don't think that's what it is. It's not hair. It's some sort of covering on your head. It's either a veil, like they have it a wedding veil back then and today, or it's some sort of shawl thing, or something like a Kerchief, which is like a handkerchief. That's weird, isn't it? Something on your head. Whatever it is, it's clear why, in a way. It's to show what's going on in your head by what's on your head. The man is to realise that he is a man. And he's to accept that the head of woman is man, and so he's not to wear a head covering. 
The woman is to realise that she's a woman and so she's to accept that the head of woman is man and so she's to wear a head covering. And if a woman refused to cover her head, especially after Paul's explained it, well, that would show what was going on in her head, that she didn't accept this teaching. The head of woman is man, therefore her head must be covered. Does that explain the connection, do you think? It doesn't to me. The head of woman is man, so man may not wear it, the woman must wear this covering. Why does it matter? And is it for all time or just for them some sort of cultural thing? Although throughout the whole Bible it teaches that the head of woman is man, it starts in Genesis 2 and goes all the way through, this is the only place that refers to head coverings. This is the only place where it says, this is what man and woman are, therefore the women must cover their heads. And so unless it's clearly said here that it's for all time, I think it must be something specific. So let's have a look. There are three reasons that are given, three sort of connections. Verses 6 to 9, he explains why the head of woman is man. And then he says in verse 10, for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. The angels just seem to sort of pop up there, don't they? It sort of underlines the importance of this issue. But it's hard to see what the angels have to do with it. The angels are created just like man and woman, aren't they? And the head of angels is Christ. And so I guess they are watching to see that the man and the woman sit under Christ. That's as much as I can figure out. It simply underlines the importance of this, but it doesn't explain the connection, do you see? Back in verse 3 to 6, he gives another reason. It's that if you do this wrong, you'll be dishonouring your head. If a woman doesn't cover her head, it's just like having her head shaved. And he clearly expects the Corinthians to agree that a woman having her head shaved is a disgrace. Is it? Hairstyles vary, don't they? Even from country to country. And from century to century, even from decade to decade, you're thinking the 70s, what were they thinking? He just assumes that everyone will think the same here. But there's no actual Bible verse that dictates that a shaved head is a disgrace. There's no real clear explanation why there's a connection here. It's similar, I think, in the last reason that he gives in verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. Paul asks some questions here of the Corinthians, and he clearly expects the Corinthians to agree with him. Is it not proper? Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's sure the Corinthians will say no. 
But he asks you, and what would you say? Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, I would have thought so, Paul. Do you see? He assumes something that he and the hearers agree with, but we're missing. When he says the very nature of things teach you that long hair is good for a woman and not good for a man, hard to see why that's the case. But for Paul and his readers then, it was true. You see, right throughout the Bible, the head of the woman is man. But this is the only time where it talks about head coverings. And so it seems to me, since there's no real explanation of the connection between these ideas, that this is something for then at that time. It's not just for Corinth, it's for all the churches. The last verse shows you that, doesn't it? But it was for that time because of their understanding of what a head covering would mean. It's a bit like the command at the end of 2 Corinthians to greet one another with a holy kiss. Did you know the Bible said that? Greet one another with the holy kiss. Now, love one another is a general principle we should obey, shouldn't we? But if Paul had said, you must greet one another with a holy kiss every time you gather together, when you arrive and when you leave the building. If you do not, it will be a disgrace. Would we obey it? Well, I think unless he'd explained the connection, unless he pointed to a verse in Genesis 3.5, God created the holy kiss to be used for all time when his people gathered together, then I think it would be up to us to decide whether we should do it. Let's be honest, the holy kiss, whatever it looks like, would be plain weird, wouldn't it? And the parents are all worried about their children doing it at 7pm, though the people at 8 o'clock seem quite comfortable with it. Do you see? General principle, but a specific command that was relevant back then, the holy kiss, and I think the head covering is in the same category. It's what's going on in your head that matters here, not what is put on the head. So how do we show this principle today, this principle that the head of the woman is man? Would it show at all in what you wear? Well, not in head coverings, I don't think, but clothes do matter, don't they? Did you hear that at Newtown High School just recently, some students got together, put a petition to the principal that the boys and the girls should be allowed to choose which uniform they could wear. And not summer or winter I'm talking about, but the boys' or the girls' uniform. Because each student should be able to decide which gender they identify with. And I guess on Thursdays you could change to the other gender as long as you had it in your wardrobe ready to choose. The principal said yes. Is that right? Should we be like that at church? Should people be confused by what you wear as to which sex you are? No, I don't think so. 
We should express who we are, who God has made us, by what we wear. That would be different in different cultures, but I think you can figure it out in 2016 in Courageon, can't you? So we should keep doing that. The way we dress, the way we conduct ourselves should show that we accept that we are a man or a woman. We want to show that in church. And so the women should be leading all sorts of ministries, uh, kids' church and growth groups and youth groups. They should be in the church reading the Bible and praying and prophesying, even leading services. But they want to do so under the leadership of men. They want the men to lead. And that should be obvious in the way they conduct themselves. And they're not just doing it because we can't find any men to do it. Because the men should know they're supposed to lead and they're eager to serve. What is in your head should show itself in what you do. A few years ago, a few of us from our church were up at Katoomba for the men's convention. There were 3,000 men there in the shed. And on the Friday night, the speakers told us a story. It was a story from the year 1900 when men were real men, you might say. The story was of, as a father taking his son to the railway station, heading him off to college. The father was a man of very few words, but he had saved enough to send his son to college. And so as they stood on the railway station, he handed the bag of money, the family's life savings to his son. And he said to him just four words, Sam, be a man. As we listen to this story, these 3,000 men, you could have heard a pin drop. For we were astounded, I think, for someone to tell a story, even from a long time ago, where the point was that men were to be men. That there was such a thing as being a man. And instinctively we knew that was the case, though society was telling us otherwise. Instinctively we wanted to be like that, but knew that we failed at that. And we wanted God's help to be a man. The point of this passage tonight is to realise, to get it right what's in your head, that you are either a man or a woman, and if you are a man, you are to be a man in the way you think and in the way you act, especially in family life and in church life. And if you are a woman, you are to be a woman, to realise that in your head, to be thankful that, for that to God and to live that out in life, especially in family life and in church life. The point of this passage is not what's on your head but what is in your head and it must show in your life. So tonight I ask you, if you are a woman, then be a woman and rejoice in that. And if you are a man, then be a man and rejoice in that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are hard truths and some hard details to work out.
Help us to work out for ourselves whether this particular teaching about head coverings is appropriate and relevant for us today directly. But Father, we can see that the simple and controversial idea at the centre of this teaching is strong and very challenging. So Father, for those of us who are women tonight or soon to be women, help us to delight in that, help us to identify ourselves as women and to be thankful to want men to lead, to follow their lead, and to use all our God-given gifts to serve you. And Father, for those of us who are men, and soon to be men, help us to understand what it means to be a man, to lead, to lead as a servant. Help us to want to do that with all our heart and to give ourselves in your service sacrificially. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.